0: The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist,
1: therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed.
0: Welcome to Recovery, the Hero's Journey. Your host is Dr. Patricia Halligan. If addiction or prescription drug dependence affects you, directly or indirectly, whether it's you, a family member, or a close friend, stay tuned over the next hour as we explore substance use disorders, process addictions, and prescription drug dependence. We'll be discussing the painful reality behind these disorders and what can be done to help. Now, here is Dr. Patricia Halligan.
1: Hi, this is Recovery, The Hero's Journey. I'm Patricia Halligan, and today we're talking about alcohol. The CDC reports 95,000 people die in America from alcohol-related causes every year. That's 261 deaths per day, making alcohol the third leading preventable cause of death in the United States, the first being tobacco and the second being poor diet and physical inactivity. One in 10 children in America grow up in a home where one parent has alcohol use disorder. I am really excited to introduce the man of the hour, Dr. John Kelly. He is the leading expert in the country on alcohol use disorder. Dr. John F. Kelly is a professor of psychiatry in addiction medicine at Harvard Medical School, the first endowed professor in addiction medicine at Harvard. He is also the founder and director of the Recovery Research Institute at Massachusetts General Hospital, the associate director of the Center for Addiction Medicine at MGH, and the program director of the Addiction Recovery Management Service. Dr. Kelly is a former president of the American Psychological Association's Society of Addiction Psychology. He has served as a consultant to United States federal agencies and non-federal institutions, as well as foreign governments and the United Nations. Dr. Kelly has published over 200 peer review articles, reviews, chapters, and books in the field of addiction medicine, and was an author on the U.S. Surgeon General's Report on Alcohol, Drugs, and Health. His clinical and research work has focused on addiction treatment and the recovery process, mechanisms of behavior change, and reducing stigma and discrimination among individuals suffering from addiction. Dr. Kelly, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks so much, Patricia. Great to be here.
1: Now, you've devoted your entire career to researching alcohol use disorder, educating healthcare professionals, and treating it in your office, treating patients and families helping them recover. How did you get into this line of work and where does your passion come from?
0: Well, this is the biggest, as you outlined right at the beginning, uh, this is the biggest public health problem that we face, not just in the United States, but in most middle and high income countries all around the world. I grew up in Great Britain. I came here in 1990. I've been here most of my life. Um, Came here for training and education and was not uh, actually planning to stay. (laughs) <laughs> but ended up uh, getting plugged here in the United States. I'm very happy that I've done so. Um, and uh, yeah, um, you know, I, like many people uh, who've been personally touched by addiction, um, uh, I, that's how I got into the field uh, through uh, kind of fam for family, personal reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that's driven a lot of my, you know, motivation to make a difference uh, in the world of addiction. Um and uh, you know it's you know when you when you when you go into the field of, of um, uh, clinical work and, and research and now policy, um, uh, you know I think you need a you need a driver you need something to keep you keep you keep you motivated and uh, certainly have that that passion to make a difference. I wasn't always intending to be a researcher, but rather a clinician initially. And ended up kind of being pulled more into research and ended up being really now most of my time spent in, in research and now in, in policy as well. So uh, it's been a fantastic journey. I still do clinical work, still see patients, and I love that, uh, that personal um, aspect as well.
1: Well, it's lucky for us that you stayed. And I agree with you that clinical work is the most fun uh, to me, but people are looking for uh, science supported evidence that this is a brain disease. What evidence, Dr. Kelly, do we have, uh, what scientific evidence to show us that this is a brain disease, alcohol use disorder?
0: Well, I think, you know, when we, you know, I've I've been talking a lot lately on, um, you know, what we've learned in the last 50 years, I've been reflecting on the the war on drugs, and, you know, it's the 50-year milestone this year since the Declaration of the War on Drugs in 1971 under President Nixon. Oh, wow. And just zooming out, you know, when, when we zoom out and take a look at what we've learned in the last 50 years, it's a lot. Um, you know, we, we normally associate this Declaration of the War on Drugs with a kind of punitive rhetoric and harsh punitive approaches, which, of course, were a part of the War on Drugs. But also, um, I think it's good to take stock of the fact that it spawned the, the birth of NIAAA and NIDA which has produced 90% of the world's research on addiction and all the knowledge that's come out in the last 50 years, most notably to your question um, about uh, the causes of addiction and also the impact in the brain. And these are the nature of which we did not know much about uh, 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. We didn't know, for example, that genetics uh, contribute about half the risk for addiction. But like other complex illnesses, this is a genetically modulated, uh, a disorder. Also, that the way that affects the brain's neurocircuitry, um, we can see that, we've been able to see that clearly with neuroimaging technology through what they call functional magnetic resonance imaging and also structural changes in the brain that go on with alcohol use disorder. Alcohol produces changes on exposure, chronically exposed as the brain is chronically exposed to alcohol. The brain starts to change. It starts to adapt to this abnormally high level of reward and reinforcement that's produced by the drug. Alcohol Mm -hmm. is a drug, of course, Um, and it produces these neuro—what we call neuroadaptations or attempts by the brain to adapt to this abnormally high level of reinforcement. And we can see these functional changes now with imaging in the brain, and these can be radically. uh, This can produce radical impairment in the brain. Um, so much so that an organism such as the human organism, which has a propensity for life for roughly 80 years, for someone with alcohol use disorder on the moderate and severe end, can shorten their life by 30 years on average.
1: Oh, is that right? 30.
0: Mm-hmm. So when, you, and then when we see images, you know, when we see these kinds of images, and you can see them on the, you know, the NIAAA website, other images online, Um, you can see both the functional and structural changes that go on in the brain as a result of chronic exposure to alcohol. And this is two processes of neuroadaptation and neurotoxicity because alcohol not only changes the function but actually changes the brain. It can kill brain cells. It does kill brain cells. And um, uh, it produces uh, uh, structural changes in the brain. And this is why we refer to addiction as a brain disorder or brain disease because it actually produces diseased elements in the brain.
1: And thank you for that. If I were struggling with alcohol use disorder and I had a few DWIs and my husband just left me and I felt like uh, filled with shame and felt like this was a moral failure, and you told me 50% of the problem is because your grandmother and your mom had it, and uh, also you've got a changed brain because of your drinking and it's a brain disease, your brain isn't functioning at the same level, I, I would feel less shame. I, and I've seen those pictures. Uh, I'm glad you uh, gave a tribute to NIAAA and NIDA. I've seen all the MRI scans that Nora Volkow has uh, tirelessly spent her career. Stockpiling, you know, where there's less activity, right, Uh, in some of the areas of the brain, right? It doesn't light up the same as somebody who is not drinking alcoholically, right? So, uh, yeah, I I think it's uh, it's very powerful to see those images and say, hey, this is a brain disease. No wonder I'm unable to stop, or I have difficulty stopping, or you know, my cravings are uh, really super off the chart. It's not that I have no, you know, it's not that I, I have a willpower problem or a moral failing. So this is this is huge, isn't it? The last fifty years.
0: Yeah, it is. You know, uh, you know, and and uh, this has been classified as a disease, of course, by the American Medical Association since the 1950s. But it's the exact nature of it we've come to understand much more clearly through these new technologies of imaging, uh, to understand exactly how it uh, uh, you know uh, changes the brain, and um, uh, it's. Um, it, it's quite clear when you when you see these images how the brain is changed. Of course, this is why it is a psychiatric disorder. This is why it is in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders,
1: right.
0: because of the involuntary aspect of it. If it was just a matter of choice or voluntariness, it would not be a psychiatric illness. Um, right. This is why it is a part of our psychiatric uh, spectrum of disorders, um, because of this um, inability, this gradual impairment, which increases over time, where people find um, uh, that they're uh, more and more impaired in their ability to self regulate the impulse to use alcohol. And this is what we call addiction. Mm-hmm. And uh, that people use it even despite harmful consequences, even with the threat of death. And as I mentioned, as you mentioned at the beginning, 100,000 deaths a year in the United States, 3.3 3 million deaths annually around the world. That's 10 times more than all illicit drugs combined. And so this is a major killer. It's the leading cause of death among men worldwide of working age, believe it or not.
1: Is that right? Yeah, and people uh-huh. oftentimes, I've heard you lecture and I've heard you say, people forget that this is a carcinogen. Uh, mm-hmm. Alcohol increases the risk of cancers, usually uh, anywhere the alcohol bathes the GI tract, right? Like esophageal cancer, cancer of the throat or the, the colon, the rectum, the stomach, the pancreas, the liver, mm-hmm. you yeah. know? Now, yeah. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how long does it take if somebody enters sobriety for the brain to return to normal?
0: I'm glad you asked that because sometimes even though, you know, and this is an interesting thing about stigma reduction is that when we talk about the, the biogenetic influences, which are, is a major cause of addiction, producing the susceptibility to addiction, as well as the neurobiological impact of uh, alcohol exposure on the brain, people can say, well, yeah, it, it can reduce blame, but it can also, on the other side, unfortunately, it can lead people to think that they can't get better. Um, and importantly, actually, this, despite these facts, it's a good prognosis disorder. Most people will actually get into remission from an alcohol use disorder. Yes, sadly, there are casualties and there are premature mortalities as a result of this illness for sure. Uh, and we need to do more to prevent that. Um, but 75% of people with an alcohol use disorder will achieve full remission. That's the good news because I, there are I good medication. That. Yeah. And there are good medications, there are good psychosocial treatments, there are good mutual help groups like AA that can help people achieve and sustain remission across the rest of their life.
1: So that's hopeful. So thank you for saying that because I think sometimes people hear, I have a brain disease, I have a broken, I am broken. Mm -hmm. But you're saying that 60 to 75% of people will recover uh, from an alcohol use disorder. It might take them a long time, but- they recover up to seventy-five percent of them, mm-hmm. so that is very hopeful, right?
0: It is absolutely right, and it's something that, again, you know, when we when we think about the last fifty years of research that's come out of NIAAA and NIDA, um, that's one of the things we've learned is that we learned that wait a minute, it, this is not a uh, a disorder which is commonly you you hear this kind of. Um, A talk that that people never get well or your chances are 1%, you know, of of actually achieving remission. It's the exact opposite. In fact, Um, most people will achieve remission. Yes, as you mentioned, uh, it can take a number of attempts for people to get into remission. It can take a number of treatments and a number of um, uh, 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 periods of shorter-term remission before they achieve that full sustained remission. That's one year or more of of sobriety um, and no symptom. That can take a little while, but most people do get there in the end, and there are many different things now that we know that can help people do that. So,
1: and I think I've heard you say ambivalence is a normal part of quitting drinking, right? Ambivalence is a normal part of every behavior change, right? So, if I want to lose weight, if I want to start an exercise program, if I want to quit smoking, or if I want to quit drinking… I'm going to have some ambivalence around it. It's hard to start. So I think today there's probably a handful of people listening who are ambivalent, who might feel a little stuck or a little unmotivated to take that first step toward recovery. Mm-hmm. What are one or two or three questions you might ask them uh, in, Will they sit in their state of ambivalence to to kind of uh, help them sort of? galvanize whatever personal power they have toward making a change someday? Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. That's a good question. Um, And, you know, this is, again, one of the things that we've learned, one of the things that's come out in the last 50 years has been the stages of change process that came out of actually the smoking uh, literature, but uh, it applies to all addictive behaviors. That middle kind of 60% of folks, majority of people, in other words, are kind of I do and I don't. There's some reasons why I would like to change there are some reasons why I'd like to stay the same right. and so I think exploring that a little bit in yourself know um, either with a with a, a, a confidant that you, you feel that you can trust to explore those th- those pros and cons with um, there are there are many resources online also to be able to do that and get feedback on your own alcohol use um, and reasons for change reasons to, to not change. Um, but I think, uh, you know, is to look at, you know, what, what are the things that you like about it? What are the things, what, what's its function in your life? What role right. is it playing uh, in your life? How does it help? Um, and, and, and also, how does it get in your way? You know, what are the things you don't like about it? That's both. The downside, yeah. So to look at that both on the, on, the, on the plus and identify, you know, what's the function of alcohol? What role? Does it play, and why is it playing that role? Is it playing some kind of function of release, escape, escape from boredom, relaxation, sedation, anxiety reduction—all the normal things that why reasons why people may use alcohol? It's certainly immediate, potent, and predictable. uh, And and like all drugs, um, they have that capacity and those properties to to give us that you know that immediate. Uh, or near immediate response, uh, unlike many other things. But what happens over time, of course, is that the price tag, it's, you know, as they say, you know, a good question is if alcohol is costing you more than money, you might wanna take a look at your alcohol use. Um, because the price tag is not just about the monetary value of the alcohol purchase, of course, but rather what is costing you in terms of your own mental health, physical health, and relationships.
1: Oh, that's a I great question, that. right? Because you might get some guy in front of you who says, "I'll ask, uh, what are your values? What are your mm-hmm. priorities?" And he'll say, "I want to make my family proud. I want to be a good husband. I want to be a good father. Most of all, I want to be a good father, and I want to be a good provider. And I want to feel career-wise, you know, I want to self-actualize." Well, how is alcohol getting in the way of that, mm-hmm. you know? And and after taking a look at everything he loves about it, right? Uh, then he takes a look at how it's interfering uh, with his value system. So really, you're talking to both sides of the person, very non-judgmentally, not forcefully. You're just saying, start contemplating what's it do for you and and what does it cost you. And yeah, talk to me from the very small part of yourself that that wants to uh, give it up at some point. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah, and it, it's it's you know it, it's a process, and nobody can make that decision than the person themselves, and they have to decide all things considered. Um, you know, where this is going and, and what role it's playing and what impact it, it's having. And right. to be patient, you know, with, you know, um, um, you know, we just did a study, a national study, where we we looked at at, at kind of the reasons, the top three reasons why that help people with, re- with recovery, getting into recovery oh, or maintaining cool. a behavior change. Um, and we're just about to publish that. But It's interesting, you know, it's a combination, as you might guess, of push factors and pull factors, you know, so it's kind of the the negative, the increasing negative consequences, which inevitably happens as people get more involved with alcohol, whether they're they're using it more, it's taking on an abnormally high priority in somebody's life. People change mostly because the negative consequences, of course, which make start people to think about, you know, create the ambivalence, um, where it was once rewarding, purely rewarding with no downside, the downside starts to accumulate. Um, and so it's the combination of the of the negative consequences and then the positive consequence, the pull factors on the other side. So it's the support from family, from friends. In fact, that was the number one oh, factor you're that really? helped people. Yeah, um, apart from the negative consequences, it was a kind of a cluster of the negative consequences and then the family and friends' um, support um, that, uh, that helped them sustain it. Oh, that's interesting. Very interesting, yeah. Well,
1: that's powerful. I bet the family members and the friends would uh, like to hear that because by the end of living with someone with an alcohol problem, you're feeling relatively unimportant, like you have no power and you have no impact and effect on that person. Isn't that interesting, eh?
0: Yeah, very interesting, yeah. Yeah, and and, and very powerful um, uh, to think of those attributions of, of, you know, and again, this was a nationally representative sample of people who've resolved a significant drug or alcohol problem.
1: Oh, that's amazing. I love that. So you have recently led the most rigorous scientific review of Alcoholics Anonymous performed to date. The review published in the Cochrane Database of Systematic Reviews. Tell us a little bit about this study. I think it was a 25-year study on the history of AA. And what did you find?
0: Yeah, well, this was something that, you know, one of my colleagues, Keith Humphreys at Stanford, uh, approached me about several years ago now um, because there was a lot of misinformation in the in the in the in the media about Alcoholics Anonymous and 12-step related treatment, but there had been a flurry of research uh, in the last 25 years, um, which had been funded by the National Institutes of Health as well as the Department of Veterans Affairs, particularly focusing on um, the efficacy of 12-step treatments, which linked people to Alcoholics Anonymous. These were people with severe alcohol use disorder. Um, In other words, they're addicted to alcohol, um, who are seeking treatment, and were linked to AA. And in 25 of these uh, trials that we examined in this review, um, because we really wanted to update the evidence and look to see, you know, what have we learned from all this research that has been funded in the last 25 years after this call from the Institute of Medicine for more research on AA back in 1990. we wanted to kind of gather all that and summarize all that um, uh, evidence in uh, looking at the most rigorous trials. Um, and so that, that's what we did. And we published that in the Cochrane, as you pointed out, the Cochrane uh, system, which is considered to be worldwide the most rigorous uh, review of, of the scientific li- literature in different areas. It's the yeah. it's the thing that governments and, and treatment agencies look to uh, for decision making, for clinical Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So uh, I think very interestingly, what we found in this review was that um, compared to uh, what we might consider more uh, proper treatments like cognitive behavioral therapies or motivational enhancement therapies, um, things which are very well grounded in science, a simple linkage, clinical linkage to Alcoholics Anonymous, which is, of course, a free peer-led recovery support resource in the community did as well, or in fact better, where there were differences, it actually favored the 12-step linkage. Um, That's amazing. And, and, and quite extraordinarily, um, I think when we look at the magnitude of effect in terms of uh, abstinence and remission, there was a 20 to 60% improvement. You know, more people, 20 to 60% more people were com- continuously abstinent who were linked to AA relative to CBT or other kinds of uh, psychotherapies, so that's wow. pretty powerful. Yeah, that's
1: very powerful. And I've I've heard you talk, I think Dr. Kelly, before, where you say if somebody can get to five years of abstinence from alcohol, then they have basically reduced their risk of ever having another alcohol problem to the same risk as the general population. So your brain is pretty much normalized. Well, the decrease, you've got a, the same risk of developing an alcohol problem at the five-year mark of sobriety. So it matters how long people can stay abstinent, correct?
0: Absolutely, yes. Because if you think about alcohol, you know, it's the drug that causes the brain change. So if people can remain abstinent from the drug, it gives Mother Nature a better chance to recalibrate your brain. And we do see this. We see the functional re- recalibration and structural uh, changes in the brain post in recovery, post uh, when people get uh, abstinent. Um, so Isn't the longer you yeah the longer you're abstinent, the, the more chance Mother Nature has uh, to do her good work uh, to, to help repair those pathways in the brain.
1: So 20 to sixty percent uh, more likely to stay abstinent longer if you add AA to the mix. That's wonderful. Yeah
0: yeah, yeah. And these were and don't forget these were randomized controlled trials. Good. So this is not a matter of self-selection right. These are patients who, are in very large, well-conducted studies with very high follow-up rates, with manualized treatments. This is good news for public health. Here's yes. the other thing. It's not just about, we found not only higher rates of remission, but dramatically reduced healthcare costs for those that are linked to AA because AA is free. Yes. So this is the other good news piece from a public health standpoint, is that we have a free, ubiquitous Indigenous community support service for one of the most prevalent psychiatric disorders that we have in the world that kills, you know, it's the number one killer of men worldwide of working age. Think yes. about that. That's uh, huge. And we have a free community resource that actually works as well and better uh, than our best treatments. Now, and, the and, reason why…
1: And, and, you, and you've backed it with 25 years of scientific research, which is so validating.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and and a lot of different studies from different scientific groups from around the world, and um, so this is replicated numerous times. In other words, from different study groups, um, and again, this was the most rigorous trials. You see the same picture, and when you see this convergence of evidence across the multiple levels of rigor, that's that's that gives us more, even more confidence and reassurance that something works. Um, So you know, I often refer to AA and groups like it as the closest thing in public health that we have to a free lunch, because it's a free a freebie out there in the the world that can help people get and stay in remission from a deadly serious condition, um, which not only causes premature mortality but a lot of human misery to those individuals as well as their families.
1: Oh, you're right. Now. What did you find about why AA is so effective in helping people get sober and stay
0: sober? So one of the other things that we've learned, again, in the last 25 years is exactly how AA confers this benefit. And uh, we, we and other groups have done many of these what so-called mechanism studies to understand exactly how things work, including Alcoholics Anonymous, because it is the most commonly sought source of help for alcohol problems. Uh, in the country. Um, We have found that AA works by helping people fundamentally to change their social network. In changing their social network away from heavy drinkers and drug users towards uh, abstinent recovering people, they also uh, uh, acquire cognitive and behavioral coping skills. In other words, relapse prevention coping skills. Think about AA meetings and meetings of mutual help where you have the lived experience of people in recovery right. who know how to stay sober. Yes. So that, there's that imparting or exchange of skill, of this is what I did, this is what what we've done to stay sober. So there's that exchange of information yes. on how actually to stay sober in the real world, you know, yes. in the communities in which people live. That has also shown to boost confidence, people's self-efficacy, to cope with high-risk situations, to reduce impulsivity and craving, and to uh, improve spirituality or meaning and purpose in people's lives. So those are some of the mechanisms that we found that actually through which AA works.
1: And it's so powerful when you go to an AA meeting and somebody says, well, I want you to call me every day, you know, or uh, if you're in trouble, I want you to give me a call. Here's my phone number. And if you grow up in an alcoholic home where the rules of the the alcoholic family are don't talk, don't trust, don't feel – You've never called anybody for help with a problem in your life possibly. So how what a wonderful coping skill this is. I learn how to pick up the phone and say I'm in trouble and then somebody meets you in a coffee shop and talks you down off the ledge mm-hmm. or yeah or you're proud of your connection with your sponsor which is something that uh, yeah gives you confidence right um, I've, And then the chip system right Every month you go and people are applauding you one month, three months, six months sober. Yeah. yeah, and yeah, yeah, it's
0: wonderful. Yeah, I mean, all that, you know, people will, will tell you um, that, you know, they like that, the camaraderie, the social network, the accountability, the 24-7 accessibility to live, you know, to the, to the lived experience of recovery um, are, all, are all things which are common to 12-step, to, to, to but I think also other mutual help organizations as well, which are growing and emerging, yeah. like Life ring, Smart Recovery, um, these other entities which are kind of newer kids on the block, um, but probably work, in my, in my guess, in this, by the same kinds of mechanisms by which AA works. And they're starting to grow. So this is good news, again, because AA is not the only way, of course, uh, of course, that people get and stay well. And there are many different flavors, if you will, of recovery support services that people can find and hopefully find something that they can engage with, that they find attractive. And and for some people with alcohol problems, it may be none of the above. It may be just an online resource that people can find. So, for people listening who have a problem or are wondering about their alcohol use, you know, there's many different pathways to recovery, and this is this is good news. You don't have to go to AA to get. Uh, into recovery you can choose other kinds of ways to change your alcohol use some people don't abstain some people actually are able to get into remission using a non-abstinent pathway where they don't actually have to quit completely but they can reduce their alcohol use again a relative minority but yes. it's not impossible for some people to do that many different pathways and Absolutely right how does how does smart recovery
1: differ from AA
0: well, Smart Recovery, it's, it's similar in many ways in the sense that it is a mutual help group, it's uh, populated by peers with lived experience, okay. but typically it differs in the sense that it has a trained facilitator who is trained in cognitive behavioral principles and practices ah. as well as motivational and uh, interviewing uh, uh, motivational psychology type principles and practices so it utilizes many of the things that we use in formal treatment, mm-hmm. but um, kind of uses them in, a, in a, peer, uh, uh, a peer support community network in the community in, in which people live. So it's a kind of a bit of a hybrid in the sense that there are trained facilitators, um, but it's populated by peers with lived experience and it's based on cognitive behavioral principles as opposed to, other kinds of principles that are – there's cognitive behavioral principles that work, of course, in AA, but it has a different – AA has a more of a, um, uh, a, a different background and, and origin and, and um, uh, uh, more of a spiritual emphasis.
1: Absolutely. And did you, uh, in your research, find that AA helps women and men differently?
0: Yes, we did. Um, and when we've looked at the the mechanisms of behavior change through which it helps men and women – uh, we found some very interesting differences. You know, one of the most noteworthy, I think, Patricia, for me was, and this, this kind of hit me between the eyes when when this came out, was that the for women, we found that women actually got more involved in AA than men. So uh-huh. they went to more meetings, got more socially involved, more likely to have a sponsor. Um, and... And they derived the same benefit, however. They derived the same benefit as men uh, in going in terms of relapse prevention. But here was the interesting difference is that for women, the way that women benefited was by reducing, was by boosting their confidence to cope with high-risk drinking situations when they were feeling depressed or anxious.
1: Ah, okay. So it had an emotional connection to the help
0: and that was the biggest way that AA helped women to huh. maintain their remission uh, and, and prevent relapse was by boosting their confidence in their ability to cope with negative affect, so-called negative affect, that is to say anxiety and depression and boredom and anger and frustration. Those, that ball of negative affect without drinking. For oh, interesting. men, interestingly for men, that was not the case at all. For men, the biggest risk factor for relapse for men was high-risk social situations, uh, and AA helped men stay in remission and prevent relapse by boosting men's confidence to cope with high-risk social situations without drinking. Isn't that
1: interesting? Right? And okay. for women,
0: that was not the case at all. Oh. The biggest risk factor for relapse for women was negative affect, was experiencing these mood problems. For men, the biggest risk factor for relapse was low confidence in their ability to cope with social situations without drinking.
1: Like drinking refusal skills and telling people explaining why they're not drinking and putting up with social pressure, you know, oh come on, just have one.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And and cool. and so this was very interesting to see these differences. Again, so we have the same intervention in the sense that AA is a single intervention as said, but there are different things on the shelf that's available that people can pick and choose from to help them at that particular stage of their recovery and that caters to their particular life context.
1: This is wonderful research. Uh, my patient population uh, has benefited from AA by having mentors. There's, I mean, there's there's so many men who didn't have a father figure as a mentor, and sometimes they get lucky in the program of AA where they get some kind, conscientious man mm-hmm. who has a good family life, who has a good career, who has 20 years of sobriety and takes them under their wing and actually is interested in their life and their goals and who they are finding out who they are. And, and the same with women, you know, who have never had a good mother figure. Sometimes it's that mentoring that just, I don't know, it's an uh, sort of a corrective emotional experience mm-hmm. that they never had before. Or like you say, sometimes it's just, you know, something intelligent intangible that, that actually helps, but it's, it's wonderful to know their scientific backing. Um, let me ask you this. What, if you have a patient in your office who says to you, What about a residential rehab? Do people who go away and spend money to go to, you know, 28 day traditional program or halfway house living, for example, is there any evidence to suggest that I'm, I've got a better chance at getting sober, staying sober longer? I'm not sure if I've seen any of that research. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. You know, we, there are no studies that I know of that have randomly, randomly assigned patients at the same level of severity uh, to either residential or outpatient. Of course, you know, with with the you know we have these patient placement criteria based on risk factors for withdrawal, for relapse risk, etc., other kinds of risk factors that can um, threaten the, the the life of somebody, um, which would determine placement in what kind of setting. Now, some people do need this higher level of care that is inpatient level, and that's right. the highest level, of course. Um, nowadays, that's that's much rarer, yeah, you know, mm-hmm. because we see people can be detoxified and stabilized on an outpatient basis um and can do as well in in outpatient settings now some people may still prefer to go into a residential setting because they can they can relax they're protected they're not they're not tempted by anything because there's no chance that they can get you know alcohol at least in right. theory i mean people yeah. can smuggle stuff in but it's, it's rare um, um, and um so you know some people do uh, prefer residential settings and they do um, uh, quite well. You know, residential treatment does as well as outpatient treatment. And again, we, we, we don't know. Um, in, there may be some moderators, in other words, some patient characteristics um, where we know that people who are assigned to or uh, uh, get, get, in, get into inpatient treatment uh, do much better. But there's relatively little research actually looking at that.
1: Gotcha. I've heard you say something about uh, parents can find sober high schools and sober college campuses somewhere. I wonder if there's some kind of national data bank. Uh, some parents that I talked to aren't even aware that these exist, right? I, I'm not sure that I know where the recovery campuses are college-wise. If you get a young person, you put them in recovery, and then you want to send them back to college. Uh, it's just, it's it's so tricky with all the dormitory living and the culture of colleges across the country and fraternities, right?
0: Right on, yeah. And this is, you know, part of a cadre of growing recovery support services that are ideally embedded in the communities in which people live and work and, and, and get education. And this has been a growing facet uh, of the recovery support service infrastructure has been this, what they call collegiate recovery Uh, support programs so these are for college students who have an addiction problem they get into they get treatment they're in remission but they want to go back to college as you said patricia and um and but they're in a in a recovery hostile environment you know sometimes people perceive college environments as a you know a big drinking setting and it can be very difficult for people to to uh Attend to their education with those temptations, particularly early in recovery. So these collegiate support programs for recovering people have really grown, and they're growing gangbusters. And um, now NIH is funding um, research in the, in these in these has done some research, funded research, and now is supporting other investigators to do research uh, at Stanford, for example, um, to look at the effectiveness of these programs. What the data are showing is that people who are, get involved in these collegiate recovery programs, number one, it enables people to go back to college. So people will actually seek out these programs to actually uh, go to college and find a, find a college that has one of these programs. Uh, and they also substantially, what it looks like is substantially reduces relapse risk Um, in college settings for those who are in recovery who go back to an educational setting. So that's good news.
1: That's magnificent, right? I mean, they could live in a sober dorm and maybe there's an AA group on campus that they could go to, or at least a young person in recovery group led by some college counselor. Uh, You know, that's just really hopeful news. Mm -hmm. And um, Dr. Kelly, what would you say uh, to the families of someone uh, who is suffering from an alcohol use disorder. Um, I guess we both know how the families suffer if there's somebody in the home with an alcohol use disorder. What, what would you say to the family members with respect to being helpful uh, for to the person and taking care of themselves?
0: Well, I think first and foremost is to seek outside help outside of the family get get inputs from people outside ideally who have lived experience of coping with this difficult very very difficult situation because things can become so insular there's so much stigma that people become secretive and they don't want to talk about it they don't want to uh, seek help because they don't want people to know and so the whole system can become very insular insulated and 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 then people then families get into trouble and the stress increases, the dysfunction increases. So I think it's very important to uh, to reach outwards to, to, to a therapist, to a friend, to a confidant, somebody you know who's gone through this or a family member who has somebody in recovery who's gone through this, that can be very valuable. There are, of course, many support groups um, who have tens of thousands of people in them like Al-Anon, Nar-Anon. Um, there's one in, that grew up here in Massachusetts called Learn to Cope, um, which is oh. for started principally to help family members who have an opioid addicted uh, loved one to get that outside input. Because what that does is that empowers those individuals to act in the right way and to treat the other to treat their addicted loved one, in the right way that makes it more likely that they're going to actually uh, get help themselves.
1: Absolutely. I'm a huge fan of Al-Anon and a huge fan of Naranon because nobody understands uh, unless you're actually living in that situation. And I had a patient who came in and said that her uh, eight-year-old daughter was probably too young to have the conversation about mommy's an alcoholic and mommy has to go away to rehab. And I said, nope, at eight years old, the child already knows there's something wrong. And it would be very mentally relieving and validating to sit her down and just said, mommy has a problem with alcohol and she's, mm-hmm. you know, she's got to go, whether it's to a rehab uh, for a month, uh, she's got doctors and she's got therapists that are going to take care of her. Nobody's, you don't have to take care of mommy. She's got, you know, a whole team. And uh, when I come back, I'm, I'm going to be healthier and be able to be there for you. But this is not your fault and you didn't do anything to cause it. And you can't, you can't help me right now. I've got my team and i i always refer to uh, claudia black wrote a book many many years ago my daddy loves me and my daddy has a disease and i guess it's geared toward anybody between the ages of like 5 and 12 and it's just lovely but yeah those are the rules of the alcoholic family right don't talk don't trust don't feel it's just so shameful but if you live in that insular uh, dark world where nobody talks. You feel like you're losing your mind
0: yes, because the be,
1: right the behavior of the person who's got the drinking problem is pretty crazy, yes, and and scary and tragic. And uh, I think the the people that. They, they're just moved to help and they just can't. So exactly. I, I love what you're saying, uh, you know, reach out to a therapist or to Alanon or to Naranon uh, or to a friend who's been in the same situation, get healthy, set some healthy boundaries, and then learn some, uh, you know, s- you know s- get some kind of boundaries so that you feel good about your connection to the person with the drinking problem.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it helps again to get some objectivity because you lose that. You lose that when you're so close to a loved one Right. And it's incredibly, incredibly frustrating for family members and, and upsetting, of course. And, and, and um, uh, they go through the whole range of emotions when someone is addicted. And they'll try all kinds of things. And they don't know what is actually working. So getting some right. objectivity, from a, and ideally from a, from a trained therapist who's trained in something like the CRAFTS model, Community yes. Reinforcement and Family Training, which is now an evidence-based model that can help family members, help their loved one. Right. Or, uh, or, or you mentioned all of these different things. I think all of those, if people could access all of those, that would be very empowering and increase the chances that they'll be able to help their loved one more effectively. It's it's truly
1: a family disease. It affects everybody, not just the person with the alcohol use disorder. Absolutely and right. when the person enters treatment, sometimes if it's the father, then the son has developed a relationship with the mother that may be more of an equal almost like a spouse relationship and they're in power over the person with the alcohol use disorder. So mm-hmm. it just, it really needs a, a trained person to help. I think the family dynamics. Yeah. I um, think so too. What would you say to somebody who says, um, tell me the best chances for my recovery? Like, I guess I'm looking for prog- good prognostic indicators for abstinence in somebody who's suffering from alcohol use disorder. Does, does the research point to anything like, I, what are, I'll do anything you tell me to do. I really want to get it this time. Uh, simple advice?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think um, surrounding yourself, you know, there's a, there's a great study that was done, published a few years back, that looked at the active ingredients of recovery. And it spells this nice acronym, CHIME. Ah. And the C-H-I-M-E stands for Connection, hope, and optimism, identity, a positive social identity. M is for meaning and purpose, and E is for empowerment. Oh, wonderful! So, um, and if you think about the, the connection with other people, so you know we can all start to change any behavior. It you know we can start and say yep you know, and we can do it for a day. <laughs> And think about how difficult it is to change any behavior, let alone an addictive behavior, which is ingrained in the brain. Very, Mm -hmm. very difficult. And people start well, but uh, the thing is, the the threat always is this recurrence of the condition, the relapse and recurrence. And as you mentioned, Patricia, and as we have found, this can last for up to five years before people are at no greater risk than anybody in the general population. So the risk remains elevated even when you're in remission. Yep even when you have that 12 months of full sustained remission, your risk is elevated for many years. So people who are successful at sustaining remission and achieving stable recovery are people who ideally find a lifestyle and connection to other people who can support that lifestyle. So in other words, people change their lifestyle and who they hang around with. And people who do that tend to be more successful. That connection with other people who ideally have lived experience, yes, uh, not always, but can be supportive in other ways, um, but who develop a lifestyle that's conducive and supportive um, to long-term remission um, are, are the most successful because that leads to those other things, the hope and the optimism, the positive view of oneself, the increase in self-esteem, the meaning and purpose, um, and the empowerment comes from that connection uh, with other people who are supportive and conducive to long-term remission.
1: That's huge because otherwise it's so lonely and you've got somebody who's just white-knuckling their way through sobriety. And I always say to people, we don't want you to give up drinking in order to be lonely and tense and not have any more fun for the rest of your life, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, boy, it's, it's wonderful to be in a room with other people who aren't drinking, who have the same cravings. Because if if I have an alcohol problem and I go home to my husband and say, "Oh, today was a bad day. I was this close to a drink," he's going to say, "Oh my God." Well, then let's call your doctor. You know, mm-hmm. like there, his anxiety is going to go up. But if you go to uh, a place where you talk to somebody who's also had alcohol problems in recovery, they're going to say, "Oh, tell me about that. Tell me about your day. How close did you come? Did you drive to the liquor store? Um, and what strategies did you use? And why didn't you call me?" I should be on speed dial. And they'll talk it through, right? But they don't get all upset. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, I I love that. So underline connection with people in recovery. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. And, and again, it's those active ingredients, five active ingredients. For some people, that meaning and purpose, finding a new meaning in life, a new purpose and a meaning can really drive people in a new direction that provides a lot of that intrinsic reward uh, that we all want in life, some kind of meaning and purpose that gives our life meaning and purpose. And, and uh, so people who are successful find those ingredients, the, you know, the connection, the yeah. hope and optimism, the positive view of oneself, meaning and purpose and empowerment. And, and those active ingredients are a play in people who are uh, able to achieve that long-term sustained remission. That's so cool. So
1: last words, we're going to have to quit in a couple of minutes, but if you have somebody out there who says, oh my God, Dr. Kelly, I have tried and failed so many times. I can never string more than two months together. I think I'm hopeless. I don't think I'm ever gonna get it. What would you say to that person?
0: Well, although it sounds corny, um, (laughs) it's don't give up because- Don't give up. uh, You know, what, what we do know is that people who keep on trying do eventually succeed in the vast majority of cases, people do get there in the end. And sometimes it can take in the national recovery study that we completed, we had people who had dozens of recovery attempts before they successfully resolved um, their problem. Now that was the exception. Most people only needed two to four, between two and four serious recovery attempts to resolve their alcohol problem. Uh, Some people needed many more attempts, but they got there in the end. So again, each time that people uh, attempt to recover, attempt to get into remission, attempt to stop or cut down, um, they build a repertoire, they build a knowledge base of, uh, uh, in the archive of their own experience, which is a valuable teacher, it's the best teacher we have, right. um, of what has worked you know, and what has not worked. So there is a cumulative ex- experience gain that happens over time and people build on that over time because you know yourself you know i know this th- this was a mistake this time i shouldn't have done that or i shouldn't i should have attended to this and that accumulative accumulation of experience will eventually get people over that hump and into remission but people have to hang in there most importantly is reaching out and asking for help take that risk Find somebody that you can trust a little bit to open up to and get the support. That's the biggest strength I think any human being can have is the ability to ask for help. So don't be afraid to do it. Beautiful, wise words.
1: I remember learning when I was going through psychiatry residency uh, training, uh, it is a strength to ask for help. And I wrote that down. Mm-hmm. I I didn't know that. <laughs> like right. growing up where I grew up, that was not necessarily a, a strength to ask for help, right? That was a sign of weakness. And I hear that from a lot of men. Like I have a lot mm-hmm. of uh, male patients who have, you probably have the same, who have a wolf tattooed on their shoulder or their chest or their back because they're like, they're a lone wolf, right? They don't rely on anybody, right? Mm-hmm. But I, an archive of learned experiences, right? And you just ask the person, what. Well, what went right? Those two months that you, uh, well, what did you What did you get right? And Exactly. And yeah, you, you need to climb back in the ring and uh, do more research. And then you get a whole archive of tools and eventually you'll pick up the phone and you'll say, hey, I need some help. Okay. Now, we're we are, uh, going to have to stop for today, but I can't thank you enough for coming on, Dr. Kelly. And for all the tireless uh, research Research work that you've done over the years, because what you've given, I remember listening to you uh, over the past uh, uh, decade, and I didn't know that 60 to 75% of people with alcohol use disorders actually uh, entered remission. That's super helpful for me to know. I didn't know that at the five year mark, uh, people had pretty much this reduced their risk to a normal population. Super hopeful, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, right. uh, and yeah. and I also didn't know that it took sometimes two to four uh, different treatments before somebody would, would get sober. So I think single-handedly, with all your dedication to research, you've really decreased the shame and increased the hope of the population. So I just can't thank you enough for coming on the show and being willing to uh, share this wealth of information. I just really honor the work you've done. Thank you for making science understandable for the rest of us.
0: Well, thank you for having me. Thank you for the kind words. It's it's an honor to be able to do this work and I'm very privileged to do it. Grateful to be able to do it. And thanks for having me on, Patricia. Good talking to you.
1: Good talking to you too. This is Recovery, The Hero's Journey. And that's all for today. Have a great week. Thank you.
0: Thank you for joining us this week. Recovery, The Hero's Journey is broadcast every Tuesday at 12 noon Pacific time and 3 p.m. Eastern time on the Voice America Health and Wellness channel. As you wait for our next program, remember, you are definitely not alone.